invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I'd like to read just a few verses from there, and then uh, one other passage of Scripture. Genesis chapter 9. This is a passage that uh, where God speaks to Noah after the flood that has destroyed, <clears throat> destroyed the world. And in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we have these words. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of this fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has God made man. Now, if you'll turn to the next book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 20. I'm sorry, just Exodus. The next book is Exodus, chapter 20. And I'd like to read the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Each year, uh, tens of thousands of churches observe what's called the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, marking the closest anniversary to the uh, January 1973 decision of the Roe v. Wade case before the Supreme Court, which uh, legalized abortion in any state of pregnancy. Uh, averages in the United States are between three and 4,000 legal abortions each day. In Georgia, about 100 documented abortions each day. Worldwide, about 130,000 abortions per day. So why are Christians so involved in starting crisis pregnancy centers? Over the past 38 years since Roe v. Wade, uh, we've started 2,300, 2,300 crisis pregnancy centers throughout the country, uh, adoption agencies like Covenant Care. Why have Christians through the ages 
opposed abortion and infanticide? Why have they started hospitals to care for the defenseless, the disabled, and the elderly? Well, it has to do with this sixth commandment that we just read. You shall not murder. Let me tell you what this commandment is not because it's often misunderstood. It is not a prohibition against all killing in any and every circumstance. Uh, Even the book of Ecclesiastes says there is a time to kill and a time to heal. But the commandment has been misleading to many because of the faulty translation in our English Bibles. And it's typically been translated, thou shalt not kill. And so some people have tried to use this commandment or have used it against all and every form of killing. War protesters use this verse as a basis for their protest. Even vegetarians at times have used this verse to oppose the killing of animals. Albert Schweitzer was a French missionary and a physician in the early 1900s. He applied this verse, thou shalt not kill, to all of life, including flies, ants, and even mosquitoes. But this is not a blanket prohibition to all forms of killing. And I think a close look at the the grammar will help us to understand because the word for kill here in uh, in the text means to murder or to slay or to assassinate. It is a word that refers to the premeditated taking of an innocent human life. The premeditated taking of an innocent human life. So the New International properly translates it, you shall not murder. Now it's based on the passage I read to you from Genesis 9, where God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now that verse gives the rationale or the reasons why it's wrong to take an innocent human life. I found an article by Tim Keller very helpful on this point. But human life is sacred. The word sacred means set apart. So human life is set apart from the rest of creation in that we are different from animals and plants and other organisms. Of everything in all of God's creation, there's something special about human life. So we say that human life is sacred. First reason it's sacred is because it's priceless. You can't put a price on human life. If, if you're a person who likes diamonds, and maybe you see a man here at the church, and he may have a diamond, some type of ring, some type, and, and you say, man, I really like that. I'd like to purchase that from you. I'd like to buy that diamond. And he says, well, I, I'm not going to sell it. You look, name your price. Surely there's a price, and, I, and I'll pay whatever you ask. No, this, this diamond belonged to my wife who died a number of years ago. It means the world to me because it meant the world to her. There's no, it's not for sale. You can't buy it at any price. What he means by that is it's priceless. And so when God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, he's saying there is nothing that you can pay for a human life except something that also is priceless, another human life. Imagine if you said, well, if you shed a human life, the fine will be $5,000. What you're saying is the price of that life is $5,000. If you say, well, if you kill another person, if you murder another person, that will be 20 years in jail. What you're saying is 20 years of jail is the price of the human life. But God says you cannot pay for it with anything except its own currency, another life that also is priceless. So this is a way of saying human life has infinite value. Now, we may read this today and look back and say, ooh, that looks harsh. But you have to understand that this was a tremendous advance 
When you look at the ancient legal codes that were in existence at the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments, I remember in Western civilization back in college, we read about and studied and saw pictures of the Code of Hammurabi. Does that name mean anything to you? That, that big cylinder-type stone with all those, that inscription on it? Now, that was written about the same time that the nation of Israel was given the Ten Commandments. And it reveals a great class distinction as the basis for the punishment for murder. For example, we read there, so I'm told, if a rich man was murdered by a poor man, then the penalty might be that the rich man's family could go and slaughter the entire extended family of the poor man. But if a poor man was murdered by a rich man, then the rich man could give a monetary compensation to that family. They were not allowed for vengeance. So it showed a tremendous class distinction as to what your life, what value was placed on it as the punishment for murder. So here is God saying, no matter who you are, rich or poor, no matter your gender, no matter your race, you shall not murder. So it elevated the value of human life, even in the surrounding cultures of the time. Human life is sacred also because it's not yours. If you were to walk up to me and say, Chip, here's $10,000. It's yours. Do with it what you will. That's fine. I, I, would, I would take it and do with it what I wanted to. But if you said, here's $10,000. I'm going on a trip. I want you to keep this safely for me. And when I return a year from now, I'd like it back. Well, that's totally different. Then I say, well, okay, where can I put it? Where can I store it? Where can I invest it? So that to keep it safe. It doesn't belong to me. I can't spend it. God says that your life is not your own. It is set apart because it belongs to him. No other human life belongs to you. Not, not your child, not the little one, little David we saw baptized, or the, or the twins over here. Not, not your children, not your parents. Your, even your life does not belong to you. It belongs to another. It belongs to God. So we have to give an accounting to him as to how we treat his possessions. That means it affects how we deal with other people. So every person that we have contact with, whether it's the person bagging your groceries whether it's the clerk at the bank, whoever it is, the person who delivers your mail, I, have, I am accountable for how I treat that other person because he or she does not belong to me. They belong to God. Now, a third aspect of that human life is sacred is because we're made in God's image. Divine glory rests on every human being. Now, I mentioned at the first service that when I have taught this at different Bible studies, sometimes I get a pushback from people saying, Wait, Chip, you're saying all people have dignity. And they will recall someone who really abused them or committed a crime against them and say that person had no dignity. I'm talking about in a different sense. We all have value and worth because we are created in the image of God. It is value that is inherent. Now, people may not act very dignified. They may act like animals at times. But that person still created in the image of God. So let me draw or make that distinction. I read some time ago of a young girl who was born in Florida with serious birth defects. Food was then withheld from her and she died of starvation. And the editorial I read mentioned how if she had not been so deformed, her life might have had value. And I went, whoa, no, her life had value by the sheer fact that she was a human created in the image of God, not some utilitarian standard that says, well, if you can do certain things, then you have value, or you have to prove your value. So all people, regardless of language or habits or knowledge 
or backgrounds are made in the image of God. And so his commandment not to murder has never changed because his image in people has never changed. He's given this command to protect you and to provide for you. Now, so why should we care? Why should we care about what happens to, especially the unborn, that can't speak for themselves? They can't vote. They can't uh, put forth arguments for their own protection. Why should we care about other people that are downtrodden or the poor or, or the abused or, or the hungry? Should we care about them to justify our existence as a church to the culture around us? No. You can't do that anyway. That won't work. No, we should care because it's the sixth commandment. We shall preserve life. That's, that's the opposite of what it says, or that's the fuller explanation. You shall not murder. You shall preserve life. What I want to do right now is, is it turn rather historical on you uh, because I want you to understand how we've gotten, at least in the American church, where we are today in, regard, in, a, in America in regards to abortion. Because if you, if you read, I mean, the, the media for, and the voices to our young for, for 38 years now, when people say, I, I don't want you to talk from the pulpit, I want a balanced view. There's no balanced view. There's been one side of the story told for almost 40 years, and that's what's presented. And so when people say, look, it's a fact of life, get used to it, it's reality. As I read on the Internet yesterday, I wish these Bible thumpers would just go away. Well, when it comes to the issue of abortion, we're in a culture war that's not like any other culture war. It's not even comparable. Let me show you how we got here. In reality, when you look back at Western civilization, there have been three great historical wars in Western civilization concerning abortion. The first great war was in the Greco-Roman world. If you go back and you read the Greek philosopher Plato, he wrote in his Republic, which some of us, I remember having to read that in college, it was a description of the ideal society. He said, in that society, any woman over 40 who was pregnant should have an abortion. And Aristotle wrote that depending on the size of a Greek family, that beyond a certain number, then children should be aborted. And he gave a definition, Aristotle gave a definition, which placed itself in Western history and civilization and was held to for a thousand years. Aristotle said that 40 days after the conception of a male, up to that time, up to 40 days, natural law allowed for abortion. And he also said 90 days after the conception of a female that natural law allowed for abortion. And so it was fundamental to Roman law that the fetus was not a human person. That was a basic understanding of Roman law. Well, what changed this? What caused this to change in the first century? Well, it was the emergence of the Christian faith. If you go back to the earliest writings after the New Testament, the earliest church manual is called the Didache. And it was written shortly after the New Testament. It clearly prohibits abortion. When Constantine became the emperor of the Roman Empire and he made Christianity a legal religion throughout the empire, the Roman laws were likewise changed and they prohibited, they were changed to prohibit abortion. We look back at those we call the church fathers, those who were the writers in the aftermath of the New Testament, like Clement of Alexandria, the great university town in North Africa, or Tertullian, who was the lawyer and theologian, or Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate, or Basil the Great, or Ambrose, or Augustine, 
or even the theologians of the early church and then later like Thomas Aquinas and Luther and Calvin and even Bonhoeffer back in the uh, mid-1900s. They all spoke clearly and directly and explicitly that the Christian faith prohibits abortion. So in one sense, many look back and say, well, Christianity won the first war on abortion in the early church. The second war concerning abortion took place here in America in the 19th century, all during the 1800s, because we in America inherited the English common law view of abortion. And that view says that abortion is permissible up until quickening. You know that language? Up until the mama feels the movement, that first kick. And so the common law view of abortion was that it was okay up until that point. Well, obviously that's hazy and that's vague. And because it was ambiguous, it made any kind of prosecution virtually impossible. And by 1840 in the United States, there were very, very few laws on the books prohibiting abortion. And those that did exist that were on the books were not enforced. So it's not surprising to read that in the 1800s in America, the number of abortions shot up. The average size of an American family in 1800 was seven children. The average size in 1900 was three and a half children. Okay, seven in 1800, three and a half in 1900. It's estimated that between 1800 and 1900, one-fifth to one-third of all pregnancies in America were ended by abortion. In 1838, the New York Herald ran extensive advertisements along with other newspapers in New York City for abortion clinics. Now, let me really surprise you here. Who opposed it? Who came out in opposition to these advertisements and such a blatant practice of abortion? One of the opposing voices in the 1800s was from the newly formed American Medical Association in 1847, the AMA, whose first cause was the opposition of abortion. The Presbyterian Church in the United States, the National Presbyterian Church, made its first pronouncement on abortion in 1869, and here's what it said. This assembly regards the destruction by parents of their own offspring before birth with abhorrence as a crime against God and against nature, and as the frequency of such murders can no longer be concealed, We hereby warn those that are guilty of this crime that except they repent, they cannot inherit eternal life. Blistering language. That was in 1869 in the Presbyterian Church. You may also be surprised to learn that also who opposed abortion in the late 19th century, the late 1800s, was the feminist movement. It stated that abortion was abusive to women, and that was crowned by the Comstock Act of 1873, which made advertisements for abortions illegal. Now, we are in what's called the Third Great Abortion War. And here's kind of what some things that led up to the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. The Planned Parenthood Organization, which is the largest abortion provider in America, supported heavily by our tax dollars. And you know who, the, you know who their main individual donor is? Y'all know this, don't you? Warren Buffett. Um, they began quietly in the 1950s and 1960s to promote abortion as birth control. Now, ironically, Margaret Sanger, y'all know the name of Margaret Sanger, right? She's credited being the, uh, the, uh, um, the hero and the founder. Well, well, she was the founder of Planned Parenthood. She was the president of of Planned Parenthood, but in her early works, let me shock you, 
We buy this quotation from a book she wrote in 1920 called Woman and the New Race. Here's what she wrote. While there are cases where even the law recognizes an abortion as justifiable if recommended by, an assert, by a physician, I assert that the hundreds of thousands of abortions performed in America each year are a disgrace to civilization. In her early writings and in her autobiography written in 1938, she condemns the practice of abortion because she said it's the taking of an innocent life. Now her views changed over time. In 1967, the National Organization for Women endorsed abortion in light of what they said was the world population explosion. And the sad truth is that in the 1960s and leading up to the 1973 decision, there was only one resounding voice that stood firm against that movement. Who was it? Take a guess. The Roman Catholic Church. No telling where we would be today in this had the Roman Catholic Church not stood firm because the Protestant Church hardly raised a voice. In 1968, Christianity Today brought together 25 to 28 of the leading evangelical leaders of the Protestant denominations, and they could not even get a consensus among those leaders about whether abortion was right or not. So the Roman Catholic Church stood firm. In 1970, the Presbyterian Church came out and reversed its long-held position on abortion, and all that helped to prepare the way for the Supreme Court decision in 1973. That was 38 years ago, probably 50 million legal abortions ago. So why don't we just give up and go away? Because we contend that elective abortion unjustly takes the life of a defenseless human being. There's no morally significant difference between an embryo that you once were, that I once was, and the adult you are today. There's no significant difference that would allow or justify killing you at that time rather than now. Let me, I want to speak for the last closing minutes to the young people. And uh, uh, when I get pushback after these sermons, it's always from older people. It's never from younger people. That may surprise you. Um, so I want to speak to you because what Jill said when she read my daughter's uh, little letter she wrote about this adoption, I remember the night that, that Julie saw those, that foster baby at our house, 12 years old. At 12 years old was when God gave her a conviction that she wanted to be involved in adoption. That was 18 years ago, uh, if you don't mind me telling your age. This is a 12-week-old size uh, of, of an embryon, uh, embryo. Now, that, that's the typical time that abortions are performed. That's when abortionists uh, say is optimal so that they can get all the tissue. Now, I want you to think, young people, about the word sled. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. Size. You're smaller as an embryo, but since when does your body size determine your value? I had a short person walk up to me after the first service. I appreciate you saying that. That's how serious. When did size determine whether you have value or not? Second is level of development. Certainly this is less developed, but when is that decisive? We can go in the nursery and they're one-year-olds. Now, they are not near as developed mentally or physically as you that are teenagers that are here. Uh, but we don't think that makes them candidates to die because they're not as developed as someone who's older. Third is environment. Where you are has no being on what you are. Now, how does a journey of eight inches down a birth canal 
suddenly changed the essential nature of the unborn from being a being we can kill to one we have to protect. It's an eight-inch difference. And last of all is the degree of dependency. Sled, size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. Sure, you depended on your mother for your survival, but when, when does dependence on another human mean that we can kill you? And so in short, humans are equal by nature, not function. We share a common human nature made in the image of God. I want to close with two pastoral words. Since 80% of women who have had abortions say they were pressured to do so, I want to say a word to those of you who were involved, whether you were the boyfriend or the husband or who twisted the woman's arm or the father or the mother who demanded it or the grandparent who paid for it or the woman who experienced it or the nurses and abortionists who carried it out. What about forgiveness? That's always the starting place. The beginning of forgiveness is confession. For any of us, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to hear the gospel over and over. The good news that tells us God created you and me in his image to worship him and to live with him forever. But we rebelled. And because of our rebellion, he must punish that. And that punishment is death. But he sent Jesus, the perfect one, who became a substitute to take our punishment that we deserve. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now he offers forgiveness of sin and new life to all who accept the gift which God, of, of what God has done. So have you received the gift? That's the starting place. And God says, come, let us reason. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now I want to give you one other personal word, especially to the young people. And there were loads of college students, which, is, which typically are at our 9 o'clock service. Isn't that amazing? College students at 9 o'clock at, at church. But, I mean, there are a bunch of them here. Uh, it's estimated, ABC News in November 2009 had an article. It said that it's estimated that 92% of all women who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome choose to terminate their pregnancies. 92%. And yet Gary Bauer and others point out there are many waiting lists of couples ready to adopt children with Down syndrome. So I want to speak to you as a pastor and as a father of a severely disabled young boy who's going to be 14 in March, which is practically a miracle in and of itself. He requires total care. He can't change his clothes. He can't feed himself. He can't, he can't communicate. Well, he hollers, but he can't talk. Now, sometime in the future, young person, hopefully not, but you may be faced with a decision down the road which you think will leave you no options and that the only option is what is offered to you to end that pregnancy. And you'll be given all the reasons why that will be better for you and everybody involved and better for the unborn child. I want to just speak to you and say you've got to consider that God is also at work in several lives at one time. And we're tempted to view it just from our own perspective. But I've got to be realistic and say God's got a plan for this little one too. Though I hadn't met him yet, I haven't seen him, or if it's a girl, or God has a plan there. Uh, our son, Stephen, would have been prime candidate for abortion. Prime candidate. But God has taken care of that little fellow. It amazes us. Here he is, almost 14. And God has provided for that little guy and takes care of him and has protected him at times that we're just amazed at that make our skin crawl. 
because God has a unique plan for his life just as he does for my life and for your life. And he's looked out for him. And often that looking out has come through many of you in this congregation. So all I want to say to you as a pastor, young person, is when you think there are no options, do not leave God and his promises out of the equation. You don't know what he'll do. And I think often he's saying to us, just trust me. I know it looks dark now, but trust me. I've got a plan, and I'm going to provide. And here's my personal statement, and I wrote it down. I would rather have a difficult life doing the will of God than what would appear to be an easy one outside of his will. We're going to close with a, with a song that we sang last week. And there's a verse on if you open to, or turn to the last page of your bulletin, you see you are stronger. The second verse, the, these words, I, I was reading these last night as I thought about this sermon. And it says, His faithfulness none can deny through the storm and through the fire. There is truth that sets me free, Jesus Christ who lives in me. Let's stand together and we'll sing, You Are Stronger. grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.